Our scripture reading this evening is Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Hear the word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Sends our reading of God's word. Well, it's a few weeks now since uh, Reformation Day, uh, but one of the things that uh, we as Protestants uh, will remember during the time of uh, when we remember the Reformation uh, is that we are saved by faith alone. And as we think about that, it's such a simple phrase and seems like a simple idea in many ways, but we are reminded of just how important faith is and how, in many ways, not simple at all faith is, how counterintuitive it is, how unnatural it is, and how important it is for us to be reminded about faith, uh, to be called to faith, to be buoyed up in our faith as we live our Christian lives. The Reformation reminded us from Scripture that we are justified by faith alone. It is not by anything that we can accomplish, not by any virtue in us that we might stand before the living God, considered righteous in his sight, all our sins forgiven. And yet we also remember that by faith, We live. By faith, we conduct ourselves day by day. Scripture reminds us that any good work that we bring forth is a fruit of our faith. So it is by faith that we stand justified before God, and it is by faith that we bring forth any good work that we do. And what a reminder that is of how important faith is. Now, of course, Scripture speaks about faith in so many places, but if you had to choose one place in Scripture to hear about faith, where you might hear the word faith an awful lot, there are probably two main candidates. One of them is Hebrews 11, in which we have the long list of the Old Testament saints who exercised faith, and the other, I would suggest, is Romans chapter 4. Romans says a lot about faith, but here, especially in Romans 4, do we find this concentrated exposition of faith set before us. Now, we're not going to be able to consider this uh, entire chapter this evening, uh, but we will consider the first uh, part of this chapter, the opening verses, and then we will turn to the closing verses. And... We'll see in these opening verses that Paul instructs us in as crisp and powerful a way as he ever does about the fact that we are justified by faith and not by works. And we'll see at the end of this chapter that Paul also explains that as we are justified by faith, that means we do not doubt Faith, not works, at the beginning of the chapter. Faith, not doubt, Paul explains at the end of this chapter. So let's look first at the opening uh, eight verses of Romans chapter 4. Now these opening eight verses, they set before us, in not that many words, 
a number of things that are really quite shocking. At least they should shock us. If we are paying attention, if we let the message sink in, they should really be amazing to us. And I want to uh, highlight uh, four, at least four, rather shocking things that Paul says that helps us understand the beauty of the gospel and also this, uh, the importance and power of faith. The first amazing thing, shocking thing, even in these verses, is what Paul says about Abraham in the opening three verses. Now, for, for the Jewish people, uh, for Paul's uh, fellow uh, Israelites, Abraham had a very important place. Abraham was reckoned uh, by them as a righteous man, perhaps the righteous man. He was their father. Paul, of course, picks this up several times in Romans 4. He's, he's, he's the father. He wants to emphasize not just the father of Israelites, but the father of us all. But the Jews of Paul's day considered Abraham uh, a righteous man. And so Paul begins by putting Abraham uh, before his readers. And he says, you know, if, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. And I suppose that would be true. And if there was anybody who could be justified by works, it would seem it would be Abraham. And so it's if Paul is putting before us the best candidate, the most likely person to be able to be justified by his works. But what does Paul says? Paul says here, uh, he had something to, be, to boast about, but not before God. Abraham may be the best candidate, but the fact is, he's a bad candidate. I won't make any election jokes uh, at this point. But you see, for Abraham, uh, if he couldn't be justified by his works, who can? But Paul shows us from the Old Testament, the scripture says... Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was righteous before God by believing this is Father Abraham. That's the first rather shocking thing. Maybe it sounds familiar to us as those who have read Romans many times, but for his readers, this would have been something uh, very arresting. And then Paul turns to something else that is is really shocking and gets our attention. At least it ought to. This is what he says in verses, well, verses 4 and 5 have uh, a couple of shocking things. We want to focus especially on what he says in verse 4. Let me read verses 4 and 5 again. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Paul sets before us very clearly two alternatives, two really stark alternatives. There is one who works, and there is one who does not work, but believes. So, you notice that it's not one who works and one who works and believes, it's one who works and one who does not work, but simply believes. Now, notice what he says in verse 4 about the one who works. He says, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And you think about this, this is something that all of us, we, we understand this perfectly well. This fits with our experience of life. It fits with all of our natural instincts. If you get hired to do a job and you perform that job, you put in the hours, you accomplish the tasks that are given to you, you expect to be paid. Not because your employer is such a generous person, but because you earned it. Your reward is not a matter of grace. It's not a gift. It is your due. If you're a student and you work hard at the assignments and you get all the answers right, you expect to get an A, not because your teacher is so kind and compassionate. You expect the A because you earned it. And if your employer or your teacher tried to convince you that you were getting paid or getting an A... Because of his or her generosity, if you dared, you would laugh in your teacher or your employer's face because you would know that simply was not true. So what Paul lays before us here is something we understand and it fits all of our natural instincts. But you see what Paul's point is. This is not how it works when it comes to being justified before God. So the thing that you know, the thing you understand, the way the world sort of is supposed to operate, it's not how it operates before God. We need to put that out of our heads. And so then in verse 5, we find the contrast. And here what Paul says is another thing that perhaps is the most shocking thing of all, really. He says... Again, to the one who does not work but believes, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Why is this so shocking? It's because Paul says that the one we believe in, as an alternative to working, we believe in one who justifies the ungodly. And that's shocking Because God said in the Old Testament that he would never do this. And if you don't get that point, then the shock value and the pedagogical value of this verse is going to be lost on you. I know it doesn't sound good at first, but that's the shock of it. But you might think of a couple of examples. In Exodus 23, verse 7, as God in the law of Moses is giving instructions to earthly judges, he is explaining to them that they must judge according to what's right. If they have a guilty person, a wicked person before them, they must pronounce that person guilty. If they have an innocent, righteous person before them in court, they must pronounce that person righteous. God says there, I will not justify the wicked. The judges in Israel were to be like their God. I, God says, I will not justify the wicked. And that's simply because he's righteous. He's a just God. How could he pronounce righteous one who is actually wicked? 
You hear about an earthly judge that does that, and you think that's horrible. How could we expect that of the great, infinite, just God? Or Proverbs 17, verse 15. Just one other example. Proverbs 17, verse 15. We read that justifying the wicked and condemning the innocent are both abominations in the sight of God. Justifying the wicked is an abomination before God. And yet, Paul comes here to the Romans and to us, and he says that if we are to be justified, we must believe in him who justifies the ungodly. Now, that is good news for us, but we wonder, how could that possibly be? Well, the answer, Paul doesn't take long to explain it, because Paul knows, for any biblically literate reader, he's got to explain himself. And you might just look at the next verse, verse uh, verse 6. He says, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here's the great answer. God counts righteousness to those who believe. We sometimes use the term imputes righteousness. It's the same word. God credits righteousness to the one who believes in him. And so God is not here just forgetting about sin. God is not ceasing to care that the person before his court is an ungodly person. But he credits righteousness to that person so that when God declares that person righteous, it is on the basis of true righteousness. Of course, we wonder here, where does this righteousness come from? Whose righteousness would this be? And Paul explains very clearly in the next chapter, in Romans 5, that it is the righteous act of Christ himself. It is the obedience of Christ He explains so clearly in chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He's not quite there to this that point, but here he makes it clear that God imputes righteousness so that God can do what he said he would never do. Not because God is a liar, but because God has done an extraordinary work. He has come to the ungodly person and credited the righteousness of his very own son. And so we can believe in him and know that he is entirely just in what he does. And that leads to a fourth, rather shocking thing in these opening eight verses. And here I refer to verses seven and eight, in which Paul quotes from the opening of Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What is so shocking about this? Well, you might think about what Paul is talking about here for a moment. Paul is asking us, I mean, he's more than asking, he's urging us to set aside all confidence in ourselves. In order to be justified, you have to be one, not just who believes, but who believes and does not work. Who sets aside all confidence in any work 
for your justification. Now, ordinarily in our lives, we like having things in our control as much as possible. It's nice to be prepared for whatever, whatever thing in life you're doing. You, it's nice to be prepared. Nice to have, you know, we have our expressions like having our ducks in a row. Right? You want to have, you want to have these plans in place so that you can't be surprised. And as much as possible, you're in control of the situation. And if, if we find ourselves in a situation in which we hear someone say to us, you have to just trust me. It makes us uncomfortable because we know that people aren't 100% trustworthy. And yet, what is God telling us here? We must rest entirely upon him. Ordinarily, that's a source of anxiety. And yet, what does Paul tell us? It's actually a source of the greatest blessedness. Here is how you are truly blessed. When you're not resting on yourselves for anything, when you're resting entirely on the God who justifies you because of the righteousness of his Son. Blessed are those whose sins the Lord does not count against them. It might be helpful here to remember the context of Psalm 32. In the opening of Psalm 32, the psalmist tells us about his experience. He's tried it. He's tried to hide his sins. He's tried to keep them welled up, not to confess them before God, probably under the illusion that he's not as sinful as he thinks he is, that maybe there's some righteousness that he can project towards other people or project towards God. And he says, when I did that, he said, I, I, I had no spiritual peace. He was in turmoil inside. But when he gave up all his illusions of his own righteousness, he gave up any embarrassment or shame or whatever it was that kept those sins bottled inside. When he confessed his sins to God, what happened? What peace he experienced. What blessedness he had. He gave up everything of his own and trusted in his God. That is what Paul calls us to do here. As he calls us to be justified by faith alone and not by any works that we have done. Well, with that, let's turn to the latter part of Romans 4. The middle verses of Romans 4 are great too. But let's turn and we'll begin considering around verses 17 or 18. And as I said at the beginning of the sermon, in these the opening verses, we hear about this contrast of faith and works. Here Paul turns to a contrast between faith and doubt. So this is also a very important thing for us to consider as we're trying to understand faith. What is faith? What is saving faith? Well, at the heart of saving faith is trust. Faith involves knowledge. We have to know certain things in order to have faith. We have to know who Christ is. We have to know what the gospel message is. But if we simply know it, Without trusting it, we don't have faith. There are plenty of people who understand who Jesus is and what the message of salvation is. But without trust in him, there's no justification. And so if faith is trust, then what's the opposite of faith? Well, it's doubt. 
If you don't trust someone, you doubt. And so here Paul unpacks this important thing for us to understand as we seek to live by faith. Now, Paul calls Abraham back to our view here. He never really takes Abraham out of our view uh, throughout uh, Romans 4. Uh, But here he calls attention, uh, particularly uh, in verses uh, 18 and 19 and 20, uh, to the fact that we might say Abraham had a lot to make him doubt. And this is where we really begin to understand, uh, along with what he explained earlier, how, how radical faith really is, how difficult and counterintuitive and unnatural faith is. Think about, think about what Abraham was called to believe. He was called to believe that he, a nearly 100-year-old man, and his, near, his 90-year-old wife were going to have, well, they were going to have a baby. And not just that, but their descendants were going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore or as the stars in the sky. So Abraham was called to believe something in which he would say, the odds of this happening, they're not just low, they're zero. This is something that just does not happen. As Paul puts it here, not not all that delicately, right? his own body was as good as dead. Doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see what he's getting at. And Sarah's womb is barren. Like, there's no chance of this happening. And yet, what does Paul say about Abraham? No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's trust. That is a rejection of doubt. He had every reason to doubt But he considered this God, what he said in verse 17, remember what he said in verse 17, the God in whom he believed is one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He is the creator ex nihilo, the creator out of nothing. He is a God who raises people from the dead. If he can do that, then this God can make a man and a woman whose bodies are as good as dead, the parents of a multitude of peoples. Abraham believed it. He didn't waver. He didn't fall into unbelief. He trusted that God could do what he promised. Now, perhaps we are tempted to think, as we are called to faith, and obviously Paul's point is we are called to the same faith as Abraham, we might think, well, God hasn't, presumably, no one here has had the experience of God coming and speaking directly to you and telling you you had to believe something as outrageous as what Abraham was told. And so we might think, well, maybe, maybe doubt, maybe doubt really isn't an issue for us. Uh, shouldn't be an issue for us the way it was uh, for Abraham. But that's really not true. Because There's really no less, 
there's really no less temptation to doubt the basic gospel message that we hear than for Abraham to doubt the promise that he and his ancient wife were going to have many, many descendants. Let's think about, again, what God calls us to in the gospel. Now, for most valuable things in life, it's strongly advisable uh, to buy insurance. Um, you own a home, uh, you own a car, um, you buy insurance. Uh, you're worried, you know, you know you might get sick, so you get health insurance. Uh, these are valuable things. Uh, homes, cars, health, they're among the most valuable things we have in one way or another. And we know it's good to get insurance because, well, you just never know. You never know what's going to happen. And maybe you pay your insurance for decades and nothing happens, but you just never know. It's nice to have that insurance in case. And then you think about uh, other activities in life. And again, it's, you know, we have this expression, you don't want to put all your eggs in the same basket. Right? If you are thinking about investing, thinking about future retirement and how you're going to support yourself, you probably don't want to put everything you have into one single stock. It might turn out great, but again, you just never know. You want to diversify. You want to have a backup plan. You want to have plan B because life is so uncertain. And then you think about the gospel. And there's one thing we can say about the gospel is that it makes it very clear that there is no backup plan Possible. There's no plan B. There's no insurance in case something doesn't turn out. And it's not as if this isn't something valuable. This is, in fact, something far more valuable than your investments and your house and your car and your health. This is your everlasting existence. This is about whether you stand condemned or blessed before God for ages everlasting. And you have, if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to put 100% of yourself, of your faith, of your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think that you are going to lead even a little bit into a plan B, into an insurance policy, then you really don't understand the gospel at all. You think about the various ways that our Lord and his apostles told us to think about the call to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a call to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. We are to count all of our achievements, Paul says, as rubbish, as garbage, in order to gain Christ. Jesus said we must count the cost before coming to him. Jesus called some people to give up all their possessions in order to follow him. He called people to be willing to give up all their family members in order to come to him. 
He calls us, every one of us, to be willing to give up even our very lives if we are to follow him. God calls us to stake everything for the most important thing of all on the work of his son. That's high stakes. It makes putting all of your retirement savings into one single stock look like nothing. And that may give plenty of temptation to doubt. But you see, there's no place for it. We are called to trust in Christ 100%. And yet as we think about this, perhaps it makes us nervous, not because we are, maybe not because we doubt the efficacy, the power of Christ's work, but perhaps we know ourselves a little too well. Perhaps we examine our hearts and we find that there is still plenty of doubt in our hearts. Perhaps we find ourselves, when we're honest, reverting back, thinking about plan Bs, about insurance policies. It's very easy, even subtly, to fall back into the backup plan mode. And so it is important for us to remember, brothers and sisters, that a weak And a struggling faith is still faith. It's interesting, in the Gospels, as Jesus interacts with a number of different people, there are some times, you remember when he says about someone or to someone, that their faith is great. And that there are other times when he speaks of people and he says, oh, you of little faith. And yet, all of those people had faith. You might even remember the man who came to him in Mark chapter 9, who wanted his son healed. And Jesus said, just believe. And the man said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And we remember that believing and needing help with our unbelief aren't incompatible. That's one of the beauties about being saved by faith. And not by works. Confessing our weakness and asking for help from the Lord, that's part of what our faith does. Our faith is often weak, but we are not saved by the power of our own faith. We are saved by the power of the one who justifies the ungodly. Brothers and sisters, God made an outlandish promise to our father Abraham. But Abraham trusted in this great and this gracious God. And did God fail him? God did not fail him. God makes a high-stakes promise to us. Trust in my son, in him alone. And he also comes to us and presents himself as one who is strong and one who is merciful and one who never fails at his promises. If you feel yourself, maybe I should say, when you feel yourself wavering, when you feel yourself struggling in your faith, think about what else you might be tempted to trust in. What is your backup plan after all? 
Your own efforts? How great are they? How trustworthy are they? Your money? How secure is that at the end of the day? Your career? How quickly those can fall apart. Your good reputation? Just keep an eye on the news and see how quickly a good reputation can be lost. Whatever you are tempted to make your plan be, it is not trustworthy at all compared to our God who has proven himself again and again as a God who makes and keeps his promises. Here again, Jesus' words, Jesus' own words to his disciples, have faith and do not doubt. Do not fear, only believe. Let's pray.